Catherine Luther is from the UT School of Journalism. Before returning to the academic world for her PhD, uh, she worked in both the United States and Japan as a producer of television news. Uh, she's now professor in the School of Journalism and Electronic Media at the University of Tennessee and teaches in the areas of international journalism, media and diversity, communication and information science theories, and research methods. Dr. Luther, we're very honored to have you with us. Thank you. Well, good morning, and thank you so much for being here for our morning session. I did want to introduce my colleagues. Dr. Amber Rosner is an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Electronic Media at UT. Uh, she received her PhD from the University of Georgia, um, and she's a cultural historian in mass communications and politics, um, especially as it relates to gender and race. And then we have Dr. Nick Geidner. Uh, Dr. Geidner is also an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Electronic Media. He received his PhD from Ohio State University and concentrates his research on internet technologies and data visualization. So we'll start off with um, Dr. Rosner. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. And to those in attendance for being here today to talk about a very important topic. As Wendell Potter noted in his interview on WUOT earlier in the week, fake news and alternative facts gained a very visible role in our cultural lexicon during the 2016 presidential election cycle. This presentation will explore the etymology of fake news before tracing the concept's origin to the colonial era the use of fake news as a descriptor for sensationalism and propaganda in the late 19th century and all throughout the 20th century, and the rise of objectivity in journalism as a solution. And then finally, I will talk a little bit about some implications for today. So fake news, it really did seem to rise from the ether during this last election cycle. First, as a descriptor of news parody or deliberate misinformation by various entities in an attempt to sway the US election, a phenomenon, of course, that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg dismissed entirely after Trump's victory. But then as a term of attack leveled at cable news network CNN by Donald Trump on January the 11th. Trump's senior advisor, Kellyanne Conway, would introduce the Globe to another catchphrase in Alternative Facts on January 22nd, when she told NBC's Meet the Press host Chuck Todd that Press Secretary Sean Spicer was not telling a lie about the size of the crowd for Trump's inauguration. It was just an alternative fact. And any close reader of George Orwell's 1984 would know that that's the origin of that. It's very synonymous to newspeak, the newspeak he spoke of. But the origins or the etymology of fake news as a phrase, that proves a little bit more elusive. And a lot of people, when we started thinking about where did this word come from, they traced it to descriptions by cultural critics of news parodies, such as SNL or Jon Stewart's The Daily Show. But in reality, the phrase has 
a very long history in American culture. It dates to the era of yellow journalism, so the actual phrase fake news. And the earliest use of the phrase that I could isolate through a full-text search of ProQuest historical newspapers, we gain a sense of the phrase's original meaning as a descriptor of false news. On March the 15th, 1893, Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune, he published this report, and it's about a bill that's introduced in the Connecticut legislature that provided for the punishment of persons who send fake news. Okay, The evil complained of, says the Hartford Times, has grown to a great proportion lately. So the Hartford Times reporter was very apt. The practice of fake news or false accounts is as old as journalism itself, as old as communications itself. And it can be witnessed in the accounts of earlier eras, in the colonial era accounts of demon-possessed births, or in the great moon hoax of 1835 during the age of the penny press. But it's very pervasive in the era of, of yellow journalism, and most students of American history will recognize this idea that, that Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst were engaged in the practice of sensationalism in a very high level at that point. So they're telling these tales, these false accounts of Evangelina Cisnero, of the sinking of the Maine, an attempt to prod this jingoistic impulse in American culture, and it will contribute to the Spanish-American War. Good American history students know that. What they may or may not know is about the propaganda that's also going on at this time surrounding African-American men. So there's this idea, these false news accounts of violence towards women by black men, and they flourished, and they contribute to the myth of black male bestiality and a cultural climate where lynch law was pervasive. I have a forthcoming edited volume, it's called Ida B. Wells Barnett, Political Pioneer of the Press, um, that explores this myth created by these false news accounts and how this myth was only exposed by two decades of journalism, a different form, a different type of journalism, advocacy journalism with an investigative impulse. That's exactly right, Holly Springs near Memphis. So I do have one excellent student in American history. You get an A. So false news accounts or fake news in the form of sensationalism and propaganda continue to flourish throughout the 20th century. On August the 9th, 1914, for instance, the Atlanta Constitution published a House editorial that described the flurry of fake news in the aftermath of the outbreak of World War I. One of our esteemed afternoon contemporaries in headline type as big as a goat wagon, I figured people from the country might appreciate that, in a week sunk more German cruisers than there are in the whole German Navy. Okay. The morning newspaper likely, they had an agenda. We're kind of thinking about agendas here too. They likely reported on these sins of an afternoon contemporary to gain an edge over the competition. But by the following year, even President Wilson was bemoaning fake news. In his luncheon speech at the Associated Press, he warned newspaper men, unfortunately there aren't a lot of newspaper women around at that point, present against the danger of publishing unreliable news. In the aftermath of the First World War, American writer 
and commentator Walter Littman sought to address the problem of propaganda by promoting the objective method in journalism. His experiences during World War I, through them, he realized that news and truth, they're not synonymous. He wrote that the function of news is to signalize an event. The function of the truth is to bring to light the hidden facts, to set them in relation one to another, and to make a picture of reality on which men can act. To foster a responsible public sphere and to safeguard democracy, however, he contends that journalists must ensure the accuracy of the news and to protect their sources by practicing this empirical verification through the objective method. So for him, this was the solution to propaganda, to sensationalism, things that he had lived through. This was the answer. I wish it had worked. During the 1920s, the objective method, it comes to vogue in professional corporate journalism. As the publisher of the New York Times, Adolf Ox, a good Tennessee resident would know he's also from here, he spearheaded this detached brand of journalism in response to yellow journalism of the 1890s. Now, Despite that, this notion of objectivity and its practice had already come into critique by muckraking journalist Will Irwin over to the side. Despite that, though, it was fast becoming the standard in professional journalism across the nation at major national media outlets such as the New York Times, but also at small local newspapers like the Polk County News in Benton, Tennessee. Newspaper journalism had developed, in the words of Harold Ennis, a bias of communication. You saw this in the form of sensationalism. Journalism practitioners engaging in this brand of objectivity sought to reduce false or sensational accounts and to eliminate propaganda. As historians have documented, however, this objective method, it develops its own bias towards the subjective views of publishers, editors, writers, and towards the official source. So by the 1930s, political leaders such as Franklin Delano Roosevelt took advantage of these biases by critiquing the establishment press. So get that, critiquing the establishment press. I feel like I've heard that before, right? <laughs> but of conservative publishers, right? And he seeks to establish a rapport with what he sees as more liberal reporters in order to kind of gain an advantage. These political reporters, people such as Joseph Alsup, Arthur Kroc, they become part of the political establishment during this juncture in time. And they collect their material through these elite social channels. They tend to echo, I told you there's a bias in objective journalism, unfortunately, towards the official source. And so they echo these official sources. And here's the thing, once again, a good student of American history knows this. They fail to disclose the negative details that might harm their rapport with the powerful. So, I mean, everyone knows that Franklin Delano Roosevelt wasn't an angel. I, I count him as a good president, but he wasn't an angel. Anyway, from their posts at major national newspapers, these same men also begin to call into question the credibility of new news mediums, first radio and then television. And one can see evidence of these attacks in the coverage of the fake War of the Worlds broadcast during the radio press war of the 1930s and critiques of the 1950s quiz show scandal. 
By the 1960s, however, objectivity, it comes under attack from every angle. So first of all, from conservatives such as William F. Buckley, who decried the liberal establishment media. Then from cultural critics who note these subjective biases of publishers, editors, reporters. And then from members of the left and journalists themselves. So individuals like Tom Wicker of the New York Times, who actually criticize objective journalism's reliance on these official sources that support the status quo. Now, objectivity, it remains a method that some reporters practice, but it also becomes a code word that publishers and editors trot out to shield themselves against attacks of bias. During this historical moment, false news, despite our best efforts in journalism, it remains. So on October the 3rd, 1968, for instance, Democrats probe this fake news release that's distributed to news media outlets on the letterhead of the Democratic National Committee. This particular piece, this fake release, it says that Vice President Hubert H. Humphrey will meet with third party presidential candidate George Wallace to discuss the feasibility of a national police force. News journalists had coined the term credibility gap to describe the discrepancy between official sources and the lived reality in the Johnson administration, and now they were closely vetting all source material. Despite their best efforts, however, we know that fake news proliferates during the Nixon administration and during his 1972 campaign, with his White House generating fake letters to the editor and fake polls that were unwittingly disseminated by the media while he unleashed his vice president, Spiro Agnew, to attack his greatest enemy in the press. In the aftermath of Vietnam and Watergate, as I describe in my two current book projects on Jimmy Carter, a peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia, rose to power from virtual obscurity by swearing to never tell a lie and by promising open press access. But here's the scoop. Fake news continues to swirl during the 1976 campaign. And you'll see it's, it's because of political opponents, right? Like we are all involved here. We're all somewhat culpable for this current moment. I really want us, now I feel like a pastor, but I want you to look in your heart and see that today. <laughs> now, so... During the 1976 campaign, Carter confesses in Playboy to lusting in his heart. His opponents then allege that he has a history of infidelity. Now, to their credit, to their credit, muckraking journalists like Jack Anderson, they refuse to publish these allegations because there's no actual evidence of it. But you can kind of see where fake news is still kind of widely circulating at this time. It takes a new form as new political conditions and new media emerge, first cable and then the internet in the late 70s and early 80s. Now, unfortunately, as we know, because we've all lived this, partisanship and scandal or gotcha journalism, they become the hallmarks of cable news and early internet news sites. And these conditions, unfortunately, truly unfortunately, create a very divisive climate in this nation, one in which fake news abounds in form of news parody, sensationalism, partisan propaganda, and alternative facts. Now, I'll leave you with this thought. Fake news, alternative facts, they're clearly oxymorons, right? 
they're two ideas, oppositional in nature, that are joined together to create an effect. And in the most recent case, Trump's assault on unfavorable news is to undermine our faith in empirical science and journalism. As we've seen in this presentation, we have been plagued by fake news in journalism and in communication and in culture since the establishment of our first newspapers. So what must we do to win the battle for truth and democracy? I would suggest that we take a look at the past, okay? And we've seen that the objectivity itself as an ideal has come under attack since its inception, but the objective method We've seen the flaws with it in corporate journalism. There are some great virtues, but there are some flaws. There's some biases of communication there. So what I'm saying today is perhaps it would be really important for us to consider new models, nonprofit models of investigative and advocacy journalism, such as Wendell Potter's Tarbell.org and media literacy projects that emphasize critical thinking. Thank you for letting me think with you. So great. Um, so what I'm going to do now is actually, I'm not going to talk specifically about fake news. I'm going to kind of talk about the current media landscape and the impact that technology has had on that landscape. And it kind of sets the context for what you just presented, kind of, but also especially with what Dr. Geidner is going to be presenting. To begin with, the 1990s was really a very critical decade in terms of seeing the beginnings of the shift in media operations and also the growth of digital media. It was the decade in which we saw the growth of cable television. Uh, it became more widespread. We also had the invention of the World Wide Web that provided uh, widespread access to a, a number of people in terms of the internet and also the ability to communicate via the internet. And then deregulation allowed various companies, including telephone companies, to get into the media business. And so since that time, the number of mergers and acquisitions that we see have dramatically increased. Um, it seems like every time I open a copy of the Wall Street Journal, there's another article about a media company merging with another company. Uh, just as an example, the type of mergers that have taken place um, and one that kind of hits closer to home, in uh, 2015, Journal Communications, uh, which is a media company with holdings in publishing, radio, and, and television broadcasting, that company merged with EW Scripps, the publisher, to form the Journal Media Group. That same year, Gannett, that owns USA Today, then bought Journal Media Group. And we've seen here in the local market the impact of that with the Knoxville News Sentinel. So consolidation really has resulted in the formation of large conglomerates with really healthy operating cash flows. And so um, in recent rankings by Ford Magazine, um, these are the four top media conglomerates. So the number one is Comcast. So you're probably more familiar with Comcast in terms of internet and cable, telephone, but they also own NBC Universal Studios, NBC television stations, the cable channels Bravo, E, Sci-Fi, NBC News, NBC Sports, DreamWorks Animation Studio, Telemundo, and of course, Universal Parks and Resorts. Uh, the list really goes on, it's beyond this. 
Number two is Disney. Disney, ABC Television, they have ABC News, A&E Television, and Hulu, which is um, basically a streaming a video service, ESPN, Lucasfilm, Marvel Entertainment, and then Disney Parks and Resorts. Again, the list goes on, so this is just a snippet. Number three is 21st Century Fox with Fox Television Studios. Fox Searchlight Pictures, Fox News, Fox Sports, National Geographic, Sky Direct Broadcast, and Satellite Television. Sky Television really is more in Europe and Asia and South America, but I want to mention them because who knows, they'll probably come here some, at some point in time. And then the fourth is Time Warner. They own HBO, Cinemax, Warner Brothers Pictures, Warner Brothers Television, and all of Turner Broadcast Systems. So that includes CNN, TBS, TNT. Again, the list goes on. These are huge conglomerates. And then, in fact, um, do you know who's trying to acquire Time Warner at this present time? AT&T. AT and why do they want Time Warner? Because AT&T their distribution service, and they have DirecTV and they have DirecTV Now. So by buying Time Warner, they have the content, right? So they don't have to deal with another company. Their content is right there within their own conglomerate, within their own corporation. So given this highly concentrated nature of media, we really need to consider the type of impact in terms of the types of products that we see, that we read, that we, you know, every day that we're exposed to. In fact, there have been studies that have shown that changes in ownership do impact on content. Just one example, one study looked at the editorial content of the Wall Street Journal once Rupert Murdoch's News Corps bought it. And what they found was that after the change, there was a great deal more favorable attention paid to Republicans and then negative attention paid to Democrats. They also found that they weren't terribly supportive of any kind of governmental intervention in terms of the economy. And this wasn't the case when they compared it with when it was owned by the Bancroft family, that wasn't the case. Aside from consolidation impacting the media landscape, the internet and the various different technological advances in software programs have also had such an, a huge impact. And so um, they've allowed online-only news sites to pop up, such as the Huffington Post, Vice, BuzzFeed. And these are news sites that are, are really attracting a large following. They're successful. They've also allowed non-journalists to have some success in terms of their blogs. And then even news sources are posting stories about their company, but people are reading these stories as if they are news stories. So what's happening in essence is that everyone is competing for the attention of news consumers, competing for you all. And unfortunately for me, because I'm old school uh, media person, but um, social media is winning out. So a Pew Center survey conducted in 2015 found that 62% of those adults who were surveyed actually said that they go to social media for their news. And so, of course, this includes the posting by traditional news media, but still, that means they're going to social media to get the news. And then the impact on traditional media can be seen actually by this graph. So this is by the Pew Center uh, Research Center. They published this last year, but they compared 2015-2014. The only two areas that had a, still an uptick was in cable 
and that was in primetime news, and then the evening news viewership on network television up by 1%. Okay, so this doesn't really look good for traditional news media. Um, I'd like to really see the figures from 2016 because of the elections. I suspect that probably there's a huge increase in terms of cable news viewing, but that's just a, a suspicion. Advertisers have been paying attention, so they've also been gravitating to the online world. Unfortunately, though, their sponsorship is not with news the huge amount of sponsorship, the dollars, are going to non-news tech sites. So they're going to Google, Twitter, and so these are the sites that are gaining the, uh, and Facebook, of course, that are gaining the advertising dollars. So these trends have really resulted in traditional news organization either closing down operations or drastically cutting the budget of their newsrooms and their staff. Um, many of you have probably heard about the New York Times and they closed down their standalone copy desk. The copy desk is where they are able to catch grammatical errors, typos, and factual errors, right? And so this was closed down. Time will only tell the impact of this, but this is a really well-respected news organization. In essence, they've set a precedent for other news organizations. They still have copy editors, but the operations have really been streamlined. We really have to think about what this means in terms of the types of news stories and the quality of the news stories that are being produced. And, you know, without the time to work on these stories, reporters there's just so much that they can do. But these news organizations, they want to fill their time, they want to fill their space 24-7. So there's a great deal more pressure on reporters to do so much more to get the stories out very quickly. Mistakes will be made. Just, I know you all know this, but mistakes don't equate to fake news, right? They're simply mistakes, but there's some people that will just jump on and say, ha ha, fake news. But no, I mean, we all make mistakes. You know, it takes time to thoroughly conduct um, research in investigative stories. Investigative journalism, it has in fact suffered. If a news company is under pressure to generate stories and fill space, that really doesn't leave much time for complex stories that have potential really significant political and social implications, right? At this point in time, it becomes increasingly important for nonprofit organizations to perhaps take on that role in investigative reporting because we live in a democracy, and in my opinion, these kind of stories are just so critical to sustain our democracy and, and to kind of really continue that notion of the watchdog role of the press. But I do want to stress that the business models are still being worked out. You know, I think that no one can dispute the importance of journalism in a democratic society. Journalists are not going to go away. They're here to stay. And there's more opportunity now, I think, to kind of start thinking innovatively, to continue the work, but really in innovative ways. And to not only just provide information in a critical manner, but also to interpret that information in a socially responsible way. Thank you so much. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And this is, I mean, I just love these two presentations because everything that they said is definitely tied to what I'm going to say. And there's such overlap dating back to the 1800s to where we are today. I mean, it's sort of daunting to talk about this topic because it is so ingrained in everything that we do as journalism professors. And it is really 
a huge part of our society. And so I've really had problems over the last, especially since November, trying to come to terms with this. And so first I want to, responding to uh, something uh, Dr. Luther said, I saw some people shake their heads in disappointment when she said so many people got their news from social media. I hate to shock you. I have a doctorate. I'm a professor of journalism, a, a newly tenured professor of journalism. I get my news from social media. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm probably different than a lot of people that get their news from social media. I have an incredibly well-curated Twitter account where I'm following literally the best journalists in the world and watching them as they create these stories. Uh, for every good, there is bad. And I think that's my overarching kind of idea that I hope you take away from this is that with every new technology, there is good and there is bad, and it comes down to us understanding it as users and trying to nudge the people that don't understand it to using it more effectively. So first I want to start by talking about what actually is fake news because I think that's really important. And I think as we get later in this talk, you'll see why it's so important. I go with uh, Craig Silverman's definition of fake news. He's a media editor at BuzzFeed and he was former head of BuzzFeed Canada. He uh, was tasked by Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, with really dealing with fake news at the BuzzFeed for their whole company. And so he came up with this definition. Fake news needs to be completely fake. It needs to be created by people knowing that it's fake. And it needs to be done for a profit motivation. And if we think of that as the definition of fake news, that really cuts out a lot of stuff that we sort of call as fake news, but I would argue it's not fake news. Fake news, by this definition, there is no redeeming social quality to. It's just junk being put up to make people money. We've seen fake news stories for years on Facebook. All kinds of ridiculous outlandish stories about famous people that are completely made up and we, call, we called them clickbait and fun things like that before. But they were really just made-up stories that were put together by some website, usually in some small foreign country, and they were just being used to make money. And then in 2016, we saw a change. We saw these being focused towards a really important thing, American democracy at its core. And that's why this has all changed. During the 2016 election, during the last three months, the top 20 fake news stories got more engagement on Facebook than the top 20 real news stories. This is a huge thing. And maybe we can look at my little graph and say, well, they were pretty close. So that's, that's not bad. Real news was really getting out there. This is fake stuff. <laughs> This is trash. Here's some of the top fake news stories. Pope Francis shocks world, endorses, or releases a statement endorsing President Trump. This has no, this is completely made up. And so if we go back to my graph, 
This is complete insanity. And I think it's important that we think of it as a huge, huge problem. And so why did this happen is the next question that we have to ask. I mean, there's tons of reasons. Of course, Hillary Clinton had a ton of baggage, which made her sort of susceptible to this kind of stuff. There were different things that made people question her, and those could be exploited by fake news. There's definitely the Russians. Journalists were also at fault because of our need for false equivalencies. And so there were a, a ton of reasons why this happened, and we could spend years and years, and there be dozens of dissertations written on the topic, but I really want to focus on one. I want you all to take a second to think about the mental process that you go through when you're on Facebook or when you're on Twitter or when you're on one of these social medias and you're hitting the like button. It's not much, right? You're done. <laughs> there is no mental process a lot of the time. We hit the like button. We hit the retweet button. We hit the share button. And we don't have a huge amount of thought into it. We find this story about the Pope funny. So we hit like. And it hits the, the candidate that we don't like. So that's even better. Like. And for us, for the individual level, it's not a big deal. When I like something that I think might be a little bit fake, I don't think I'm subverting democracy. <laughs> it's just not. But that's the problem. Because of how Facebook works, because of how Twitter works, this becomes not quite exponential, but it almost follows that kind of exponential growth curve where if I'm liking it, more and more people are seeing it. And then they're liking it, and then they're liking it, and then they're liking it. And it creates a doubly bad situation because not only is it getting a lot of spread, but then we have all kinds of research that says that things that have lots of likes, that have lots of shares, that have lots of retweets are things that we trust more and things that can break our selective exposure tendencies, i.e. our tendency to look at only things that we agree with. And so if the worst of the worst fake news is getting tons of these numbers, getting seen by a ton of people, and being shown in a way that makes us think that maybe they're a little bit more true than other stories, this is everything coming together to destroy our news system. And it's nothing short of that. And so at the national level, Sadly and darkly, there's not a lot we can do. I mean, I'm speaking to the choir. I think you guys are probably intelligent news consumers who think about the things that they share a little bit more. This is hopefully the, the darkest moment of my little talk here. <laughs> but until uh, people can't make money from this or Facebook changes their algorithm in some way to kind of vote these guys down, we're in a real problem. And then even if they do, it creates all kinds of other lingering problems because what news organizations are the bad news organizations? And although we accept Facebook as a noble organization that generally does good, 
in thinking about this, the times that they have blocked people, things like that, they've done good. I think it was uh, Rousseau who said the worst thing for democracy is a is a good prince. Maybe they will follow a good model for knocking down fake news organizations. But if we're knocking down news organizations, maybe the next prince won't be as good. And that could be problematic. And so at the national level, this is bad. But one of the good things is fake news hasn't really seen as much effects in the local news environment, which I think is really important because as much as we talk about social media, uh, lots of people still get tons and tons of news from local television stations and newspapers. We don't see a lot of fake news about, you know, the local mayor's race. Hopefully that doesn't change soon. And I will say there is a caveat, like there was some targeting of fake news in different electoral districts and congressional districts during the 2016 election, but it was still more of the national variety news. It wasn't local news. And so I think that's a really good thing that we should think about because I think we're really at a place where local news has to play a really, really important role in trying to break through this national mess that we're in and sort of say, here's the things that are important. Here's how changes in the Department of Energy are going to affect ORNL. Here's how changes in the Department of Interior are going to affect Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Here's how these national issues that we're talking about can affect us locally. Unfortunately, fake news isn't the only thing going on. The misinformation ecosystem is even bigger than this. We also have bad reporting and bad information. Bad reporting is when we're using maybe truthful information, but showing it in a distorted way. And so Fox News, is their graphics department is really good at bad reporting. And this is a great example. And so in this case, they're distorting this graphic to make the difference between these two numbers seem larger. Is everything factual? Can I say anything is wrong? No. Is it bad reporting? Yeah. And so I think that's one thing that we sort of call fake news, but isn't. And then also bad information. The most dramatic example of this is when The Lancet published a study uh, by Paul Wakefield linking the MMR vaccine to autism. That was widely, widely reported on. The Lancet, I mean, this ain't no shrug of a journal. It's one of the most important medical journals in the history of the world. And they published it. And so Joe Schmo journalists, of course, they're going to report on that. Well, years later, The Lancet retracted the article, but the damage had already been done. But as much as that damage had been done, it was not fake news. It was different. It was bad information. And so we have all kinds of examples of these. But what we're getting is a rapidly expanding definition of fake news to cover anything that's real news that's counteradmitudinal. So anything that goes against us is now fake news. And by expanding the definition of fake news, we're seeing a really problematic situation, and this is filtering down to local news. 
And so I'll tell you a little example. Over the last two weeks, I've been doing a fellowship where I've been hanging out at uh, WVIR, our local NBC affiliate, to understand how they use social media. I'm going to be teaching a social journalism class in the fall, and I wanted to know how local journalists are really using it in the newsroom. And so I just happened to be talking to uh, their acting news director, Allison Duff, and she mentioned this story to me that happened. I think they originally reported, their first report was the 21st of July. And so they did a simple story about the red light traffic cameras and if you have to pay the tickets. Weird thing, Knoxville City has these traffic cameras. We've had them for a couple years. There's all kinds of debate on whether you have to pay the tickets. And so they did a story on whether you have to pay the tickets legally. And so they talked to the law director for the city of Knoxville, and they talked to a representative of the attorney general's office for the state of Tennessee. If I'm teaching journalism 101 and asking you to find two sources to help you determine if this is a legal thing or not, those are pretty two darn good sources. So they filed the story. Well, both those sources said, yes, legally you have to pay the tickets. Needless to say, the audience didn't like that story. <laughs> and uh, poor Allison on her uh, Saturday uh, had to be sifting through Facebook comments. They got... 400-some Facebook comments, and this story was published at 3 in the morning on Saturday, I, or maybe Friday. I, I forget the, which day it was, but by the next afternoon, it had three or 400 comments on it. And if you troll through those comments, you'll find that numerous, a large number, are calling WBIR fake news. And this is where we're at. And so, to WBIR's credit, I think they did an amazing, amazing job responding to this. And that's why I, I wanted to call it out today. Is what they did is they actually performed a little bit of a content analysis. They had all these comments. They went through them. And, yeah, some were just crazy. But they realized that there were three or four different sets of comments that really deserved an answer. And so they went back and did a follow-up story. And they said, hey, we heard, your, we heard your criticism. We've lumped them into these three groups, these three different questions. And they re-reported the story. And they did add to it. And they did answer these questions. And they did say that although legally, yes, you have to pay the tickets, at this point, the city of Knoxville is doing nothing to enforce if you don't pay the tickets. This is nuanced, good reporting. But at no point were they fake news. They had legitimate sources telling them that, yes, legally you have to pay the tickets. And that's still true. Legally, you have to pay the tickets. They're not enforcing it now ticket will still be out there somewhere if they decide to start enforcing it if a collection agency offers them a good deal to start enforcing these tickets they could so you should probably pay the ticket but this was a local news story that got the same kind of treatment as 
if you wrote something negative about Trump right now. People didn't like the outcome of the story, so they called it fake news. And this, sadly, is the new normal for now. This is what we're going to have to do. And journalists are going to have to be more vigilant. Any errors that they make are going to be magnified. Anything that can be used to point out how journalists are fake news, are the enemy of the people, is going to be exploited. Next, journalism is going to have to maintain, or local journalists, is going to have to maintain its role as an agenda-setting institution. Local journalism really needs to step up and tell us what is important locally. And I think we are specifically an odd little market. Two of the things that are important to us, dear to us, are the work being done at Oak Ridge and the loveliness of what's going on at uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And these things are affected by national policies. And so I think local media really needs to step up and start saying, here's specifically how these things are affected. And you can do this localizing game all day. Uh, we do it in my classes where you try to localize national stories. And I think local media really needs to step up and do that more. Because if we can't count on the national system as strongly, we really need to count on the local system. And then lastly, local news really needs to do a great job of trying to listen to their audience and understand and respond to criticism fairly. We make mistakes. I think if you asked Allison again how they would have differently reported the original red light story, yeah, there's things that they would have done differently. But at no point are they disappointed with the outcome. And then lastly, I did want to spend uh, just a second touching on big data uh, because one of the things that local journalists need to do and national journalists is give people the information so they can make decisions on their own. But I think we need to not think of big data as a savior in any regard. Big data is the internet, and the internet is big data. The internet has its good. It has its bad. There's so many sources, we can pick what we want. If we pick good sources, the internet's wonderful and perfect. If we pick terrible sources, the internet's terrible. The same is true with big data. I have two studies that we've uh, published, or one's in a review, where, you know, we gave people extra information, we let them control the data, and we found that that helped reduce misperceptions because people felt like they owned the data. They were making it. They were coming up with the conclusions. And then they were able to rise over this partisan misperception. And that's really great, but that was a really small data set. We found when we gave them more data and more freedom to cruise throughout that they ended up just picking things that confirmed their story. And so as much as I think big data is a buzzword, it is just the internet. The internet is a big data experiment. And so I, as much as uh, we want to rely on big data and just giving people information, that also has problems associated with it. 
And finally, where do we go from here? That's the million-dollar question. I think some of these things at the national level are things that in this room we really can't do a lot about. Be sensible in your sharing behavior. Think about what you're liking. Locally, I think we need to support local media. We need to support journalists. You know, as a person who has a brother who is a D.C. journalist, who is the fake news, the enemy of the people, reach out and thank journalists. They're doing work. They are struggling every day. And so if you're on social media and you read a good story, tell a journalist, hey, way to go, good work. And I've been trying to do that, and you guys should too, because these are, you know, dark times. So thanks. Have a good day. <laughs>Thank you for listening to a podcast of Knox County Public Library. To hear other episodes, please visit our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.